My heart is full this morning. Jesus is risen, amen? Oh, man. Well, welcome, welcome. So glad each and every one of you are here this morning spending your Easter Sunday with us. We've already had a great time, have we not? Oh, that was good. Thank you, worship team. Well, I want to start off this great Easter morning by asking you a question. What kinds of things are guaranteed in this life? Just think about that for a second. What kind of things are guaranteed in the life that we live on earth? I'm sure that many of you have purchased products that had a lifetime guarantee. And if it breaks, they'll replace it. It's usually the way that goes. We have services that are guaranteed to leave us satisfied. Some say things like money, popularity, and health are guaranteed to bring happiness. Vacations to exotic places are guaranteed to give you the rest that you need. But are these real, lasting guarantees? Ben Franklin famously said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Probably said a little tongue-in-cheek, but I think he, has, he had a point. What does this world really guarantee us? And does it really deliver? What does the Bible guarantee us? It's a good morning to be alive. And I want to consider the guarantee that we have from Jesus Christ. I want you to I want to invite you to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a passage that John MacArthur says is the most extensive treatment of the resurrection in the Bible. And what I want to do this morning, we're, we're going to really I could I, the, the texts that I could preach that I am going to preach to you this morning really could be done in about 3 sermons. So we're going to do a bit of a flyover. So I encourage you, go home and and dig into this because there's just some great truths in this passage. But I want to consider three things this morning in relation to the resurrection. And our last point I want to see as a guarantee to us because of the resurrection. So we're going to see three things about the resurrection. The last point being a guarantee to us because of the resurrection. So I hope you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 15. Would you read along with me as I read? Now, Paul writes, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Your first point this morning, Jesus' resurrection is confirmed by testimonies. Jesus' resurrection is confirmed by testimonies. Now, just to give you a little bit of background of the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians deals with correcting bad practices because of bad doctrine. Paul spends 1 Corinthians correcting bad practices that are a result of bad doctrine. What we do is based on what we believe. That's the way it works. What you believe will be practiced in your life. And so Paul is going through this church that had a lot of bad practices, was doing a lot of things poorly, wrongly, sinfully, and it all went back to things that they were believing that were wrong. 
Let me give you an example. For instance, in chapter one of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with disunity in the church because everyone in the church, they had their, their pet apostles. If you've studied the book, you know what I'm talking about. Some would say, well, you know, I'm of Paul. That's the one I like to listen to. That's my theologian. That's my apostle. Some would say, I'm of Apollos. Others would say, well, I'm of Jesus. Look how righteous I am. But what it was doing was creating division in the church, whereas Paul comes along and he says, no, 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 no. You be united in the same mind. You be united, church, not divisive. The church is to be unified around Christ, not divided by who we follow. Our faith and trust should be grounded in Christ, and out of that flows unity, not these silly divisions. So all through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is correcting these types of behavior. And we get to chapter 15 out of 16. Should let you know how many issues he had to deal with. That's a long epistle. We get to chapter 15 and we deal with the topic of the resurrection. Now, Paul here, you'll see as, we, as, as Chris read and as you see when we dig in here, he is going to deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that wasn't the problem in 1 Corinthians, in the Corinthian church. They weren't denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ because if they did that, they wouldn't be Christians. They were denying the future resurrection of the saints. We're gonna get into that. Well, what Paul does first here is that he gets back to the gospel. He says in verses one and two, I'm gonna read it again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. He gets back to common ground. He's starting his argument for the resurrection of the saints by starting on common ground. He says, let's go back to what I preached to you. When I was with you, when I planted this church, I preached to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you received. That's how you stand. That's how you're growing. So we're on common ground. A common practice in the ancient day, when you were setting up an argument, a common practice would be starting on common ground, something we both can believe in. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's going back to the basics of the gospel. Let's start with the gospel. We both agree with this. We can stand on this ground together. And then Paul's going to build his argument from here. So he gets to the gospel and he says, well, let's look at this. He develops his argument in verse three. Read along with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now there's a lot in those verses an absolute lot in those verses. But for this morning's purpose, I want to focus on what he's doing. He's building his argument for the resurrection of the saints by starting with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is confirmed by testimonies. First of all, it's confirmed by written testimony. Do you see the phrase in there, in accordance with the scriptures? You receive this in accordance with the scriptures. He was died, he was buried, and on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, he was raised. What does that mean? It means that the Old Testament prophesied about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The Old Testament is written testimony to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, those three things are the core components to the Christian faith. You wanna get down to the core components, what do I have to believe at the center for Christian faith? Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul says those were foretold in the Old Testament. This past Good Friday, we looked at Isaiah 53. Paul preached a message from Isaiah 53, and we looked about it. If you read those verses, you can see they speak of Jesus' death, do they not? They speak of the man of sorrows. And you can see Isaiah 53, and then you can read the accounts of the crucifixion, and you can see the parallels. Written testimony of the death of Jesus. Something interesting in Isaiah 53, if you hit verse nine in Isaiah 53, it says this, he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. What was that? A prophecy about the burial of Jesus Christ, that he would be buried in a borrowed tomb of a rich man. I love the fact that it was a borrowed tomb. Borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea. We get to passages like Psalm 16 that declare Jesus' resurrection when it says this, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It's a reference to Jesus' resurrection. It's veiled, yes, but it is a reference to Jesus' resurrection. The Old Testament, if you go through the Old Testament, it promised these things over and over and over again. The Old Testament pointed to Jesus. What do you think the sacrificial system was all about? It pointed to Jesus. And so that's what Paul is saying here. There is written testimony. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And in a lot of cases to these core doctrines of our Christian faith. But that's not it. I should say that's not all. Not only do we have written testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ before it happened, but we have eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ when he did rise. Look at verse five. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's a reference to their death, by the way. Verse seven. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, Acts chapter one tells us that he spent about a period of 40 days making appearances to to various disciples and to others. We see from this text, 500 at one time. Most of them, at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, were still alive. What did that mean? Well, the church in Corinth were composed of a group of believers who weren't in Jerusalem when Jesus rose, They didn't physically see Jesus' resurrected body. But if they wanted to make the journey, they could go talk to people who did. And imagine that. Imagine us knowing somebody who actually saw Jesus rose from the dead. He saw, saw the resurrected body and you had a chance to go and talk to them. Imagine those eyewitnesses still being alive. And Paul says, we have those eyewitnesses. They are still alive and they give testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John, the apostle in 1 John 1, he writes this, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you 
so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That which we have seen and heard, that's which we have touched, that's what we have interacted with, the resurrected Jesus Christ. We bear testimony, eyewitness testimony to that. So Paul lists all these people who have seen the resurrected Christ and then he says in verse eight, last, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now that might be a confusing phrase, one untimely born, and there's some debate on what exactly that means, but it probably is a reference to the fact that Paul wasn't with the original 12 or the original followers. You remember Paul's story that he was saved on the road to Damascus. He was saved after Christ ascended. He never saw the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, so his experience with the resurrected Jesus was different than all of them. He saw Jesus in a vision he did see the resurrected Jesus, but it was different. And that's probably what that phrase refers to. But Paul is using these eyewitnesses as testimony to substantiate that Jesus rose from the dead. And by the way, testimony. Testimony is what we use to verify any historical event or historical person. Did you know that? Everything that we know from history is based upon written testimony. Or in some cases, let's say like World War II, we can go and talk to eyewitness testimony. And that's the way it is. You can't prove historical events in a laboratory. Why not? Because you can't reproduce them. We can reenact them, but we can't reproduce them. We can't reproduce, say, the Boston Tea Party. We can't prove that in a laboratory. How do we know what happened? Evidence, testimony. That's how we know any historical event happened. That's how we know George Washington lived. Anybody around when he was around? If you have been, please, I want to talk to you. That's how we substantiate any historical event is through testimony. And eyewitness testimony, which we use in our courts to convict or release people, eyewitness testimony is very powerful. Yes, it can be skewed. Yes, people can lie. Yes, we can misperceive. Have you ever thought you saw something, but then come to find out it didn't happen the way you thought it did? Yes, eyewitness testimony is not 100% infallible, but it is very pow powerful. And when you go back and you read this list and you see that at one time Jesus appeared to 500 people, That's hard to skew. That would be impossible, really, to skew. To get 500 people to lie. Especially when you consider that many of them were martyred for their testimony. When you consider that 500 people and more saw the resurrected Christ, that's overwhelming. Josh McDowell says of this eyewitness of Jesus, they, the disciples, wrote as eyewitnesses. And that is some of the most powerful testimony we have for any event or person in history. Sir Lionel LeCou, who was one of the most successful lawyers in history and a critic of the resurrection until he reviewed the evidence, is quoted to have said this, I say unequivocally 
that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Something as marvelous, something as epic as a person rising from the dead, there is overwhelming evidence to support that. Now, can I just pause for a second and say this? Jesus rose from the dead. And if you doubt me, if you're sitting there in that chair thinking that I'm reading antiquated material and have antiquated thinking and I'm out of touch with reality, can I challenge you? If you doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ, can I challenge you to look into it? Can I challenge you to research it? Can I even go so far as to challenge you to try to disprove it? Because you will be overwhelmed with what you discover. I'll even give you two places to start. One, I mentioned him earlier in the quote, a book by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter. Jot that down somewhere. I think every believer should read that book. It's a little book, about 120 pages, and it'll strengthen your faith. If you're an unbeliever, dig into that book. Let me give you another one. A little bit thicker, but a good one. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Why do I recommend these two? Because these were two men who tried to disprove the resurrection. And they were converted because the evidence was overwhelming. So if you doubt me, please read those two books. Now let's get back to the text. Paul is using these testimonial accounts to dive into his next argument. So he gets back to the gospel. From the gospel, he builds onto the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now he's going to deal with the issue. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, which we just dealt with in 11 verses, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let me give you your second point. Jesus' resurrection is foundational to our faith. Jesus' resurrection is foundational to our faith. Now, let's untie this knot that is verses 19 through 12. What we end up here is a logical conclusion if the worst were true. That is, if Christ had not risen from the dead, verses 12 through 19 open up to us what would be true if that was true. He starts off in verse 12 saying, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? We just saw in verses 11 through, through or I'm sorry, verses 1 through 11, Christ raised from the dead. We have witness, we have testimony to bear witness to that. We get to this, and Paul's dealing with the issue. I told you earlier, the issue was this. Not that they doubted Christ's resurrection, but that they doubted the saints' resurrection. Now, why would they do that? Let me give you a little bit of culture, a little bit of Greek philosophy that was probably seeping into the church here. 
Greek philosophy believed in what's called dualism, that everything physical was intrinsically evil. Everything physical. Our physical planet was intrinsically evil. Our physical bodies were intrinsically evil. Everything was intrinsically evil. Now, another sermon for another time, but it's dangerous when we let cultural influences invade the church. I could talk a lot about that, but we're gonna move on. But that's what was going on here, or likely going on in the church of Corinthian. They were letting this Greek philosophy seep into the church, and it was polluting their beliefs that Paul had laid out to them. So this idea that everything physical was evil. So what they were doing was they were concluding this, okay? If everything physical is evil, then a body that's raised from the dead would be evil because it would be at least in part physical. So there can be no resurrection from the dead. That's what they were concluding. Paul comes along and says, that's balderdash. He says, think about what you're saying. He just confirmed Jesus rose from the dead. He's confirmed that he rose bodily in form. By the way, the grave was empty, which means he rose in his body that they were saying was intrinsically evil. We saw him, we interacted with him. So in verse 13, he says, if there's no resurrection dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if your logic is true that the body is intrinsically evil, so we're not gonna be raised from the dead, then Christ could not have been raised from the dead. If our physical bodies are evil, then Christ's physical body was evil, and so he's not even raised from the dead. That's what Paul's saying here. So their logic was off, and he's saying, you can't have one without the other. He says, this is a both and or neither nor situation. If Jesus was raised, we will be raised. If we will not be raised, then Jesus hasn't risen. So let's consider this. Paul goes into a what if scenario. He says, let's, let's consider this. If you're saying that there's no resurrection of the dead, then we have to conclude that Jesus was not raised from the dead. So if Jesus was not raised from the dead, let's look at that for a second. First of all, he says, our preaching is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. Everything we're saying is completely pointless. I know we're, 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 we're touching back on Ecclesiastes here, but hang with me. Our preaching is in vain. Secondly, he says, your faith is in vain. If the dead are not raised, Jesus is not raised, so everything you believe about Jesus is completely in vain. It's completely worthless. Then he says, we're even misrepresenting God because we're claiming that Jesus came from God. We're claiming that Jesus is God. We're claiming that God rose Jesus from the dead, and if that's not true, then we're misrepresenting God, and you don't want to be there. He says, we're still in our sins. Everything that we've been proclaiming about forgiveness, it's pointless if Jesus hasn't raised. You're still in your sins. Then he says something that would cause us all to quake. He says those who have died in Christ are gone. Jesus hasn't raised. Then everyone that you knew who has perished in their faith is gone. Lastly, he says, of all people on planet Earth, we are the most to be pitied. Why? 
because we hold on to something that, dare I say it, is stupid if Christ is not raised from the dead. What are we doing? Why are you sitting there? Why are you wasting your time listening to me? Why are we reading our Bibles? Why do we sing praise songs? If Christ isn't raised from the dead, everything that we have built our lives on is completely pointless. In fact, there is no point. So the logical conclusion of life is eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow you die. That's a stark reality. Which is why Jesus' resurrection is foundational to our faith. It's foundational to our faith because if it didn't happen, there's absolutely no purpose for this. So if he did rise, let's flip the list. Our preaching has purpose, eternal purpose. Your faith has meaning. In fact, your faith is the most meaningful thing there is. We're accurately representing God. Our sins are no more. Those who have died in Christ are with Christ and we will see them again. And of all people on planet earth, we are the most to be envied because we have hope. So Jesus' resurrection is foundational to our faith. Here's your last point and our guarantee. Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. He says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. Say it with me. Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. Amen. Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, I'm going to go geek Greek on you. It's a term that I coined. Geek, Greek, Greek, geek. Hang with me. The phrase has been raised. You guys see that in your Bible? Has been raised. Christ has been raised from the dead. That's one word in the Greek language. This is technical. Stay with me. It's in the perfect passive tense. Aren't you glad you know that? It's in the perfect passive tense. What does that mean? It means a past action with ongoing consequences. Paul could have just written it in the past tense. Jesus rose from the dead. But he wrote it in the perfect passive tense. It's a past action with ongoing consequences. And what does that tell us? Well, it describes Jesus' resurrection. It describes Jesus' res- resurrection to a T because it happened in the past, yes, but the consequences of that event are ongoing. And I would argue that the consequences of Jesus' resurrection will go on for eternity. Because Jesus rose to the body, let's stick with the context. What does that mean specifically to what we're talking about today? It means specifically to what we're talking about today that Jesus' bodily resurrection, the consequences of that is that you will have a bodily resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead and that has future meaning for you. 
He goes on to describe it as the first fruits. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? The Jews had a feast of first fruits. It was a dedication of the first gatherings of the grain harvest to the Lord. And you can read about it in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23. It was an offering of the first of the grain. And by offering this grain, by bringing in the first of the grain and bringing it to the temple or bringing it to the tabernacle and offering it to the priests and giving it to the Lord, the Lord guaranteed them the rest of the harvest. So Jesus is our first fruit. He's the first fruits. In other words, Jesus' bodily resurrection is the first fruits in the sense that God guarantees your resurrection. It is a guarantee. And unlike the things we talked about at the start of this message, it's a real, lasting, eternal guarantee. You are guaranteed a resurrected body because Christ rose. Christ rose with a new, incorruptible body. You will one day rise if you are a believer in Jesus with a new, incorruptible body. Paul goes on to write in verse 21, for as by, one, by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul points back to Adam's sin here. We are all condemned because of the choices of Adam and Eve. Pastor Tony used to say we're living in a Genesis 3 world. That one sin in the garden, by the way, that also was a past action that had ongoing consequences for all of humanity. Adam's sin in the garden affected all of us. Adam died And as a result of his sin, all of us will die. But as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now don't confuse those alls. He says as in Adam all die, that's a reference to all of humanity. Every man, woman, and child ever born, ever been will die and has died. But when he says, also in Christ shall all be made alive, that doesn't mean all of humanity. That means all who are in Christ. All who have put their faith in Christ. He's not teaching universalism. He's pointing out that all have been affected by Adam and all who have choose Christ are affected by Christ. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. I'm going to go Greek on you one more time, okay? See the shall be made alive? Shall be made alive there in in verse 22. That's in the future passive tense. In other words, it's going to happen. All who are in Christ will be made alive. You will receive a new incorruptible body. What's it going to be like? It's going to be great. It's just going to be great, and it's never going to wear out, and it's going to last forever. And that's about all I know. Jesus has risen, and that historical fact guarantees your resurrection if indeed you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So that begs the question. 
Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe in him? Have you come to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, placing your faith in him? Have you done that? If you're sitting there this morning and you're not sure, or maybe you are sure and you haven't, let me urge you, urge you because this is the most important decision of your life. You don't believe me? This affects your eternity. It's the most important decision of your life. Let me urge you to embrace Christ by faith. You might ask, how do I do that? It's simple. He did all the work. All you have to do is acknowledge him. You can, in the quietness of your own heart right now in this moment, say to him, Lord, I am sorry for my sins, and I believe in you. Remember those core doctrines we talked about? Death, burial, and resurrection. You embrace that by faith, and you're saved. We confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Now, if you're thinking about doing that, or if you even did it just a few seconds ago, would you come talk to me, or one of our elders, or one of our elder wives? We just, we, we want to encourage you. We want to pray with you. You began a new life today if you did that. Now, if you already know Christ, as I know many of you do, let me leave you with this word. Your Savior has risen. And he promises that you will be raised too. And let me challenge you to remind yourself of that every single day. That will help you get through your day. That will help you beat your anxiety. That will help you beat your fears. That will help you beat your doubts. That will help you beat your worry. That will help challenge you with everything that's facing you in your day is the thought that my Savior is risen and whatever I'm facing today is temporary and there's a body waiting for me. A new incorruptible body is waiting for me. Arm yourself with that thought. So when your weaknesses make themselves known and when your doubts rise to the surface and when your fears grip your heart, you protect yourself by reminding yourself, Jesus rose and I'm gonna rise too. He died for us. He rose for us. Let's pray. Amen, Jesus. You are magnificent. You are good. Your promises are sure. You rose from the dead. We celebrate that today, but we celebrate that every day. It's what our entire faith is based on. So Jesus, help us. You know 
you've experienced this life on earth, you know it's hard. You know it has its challenges. Remind us every day, this isn't the end. This isn't all there is. You rose from the dead and defeated death. You defeated sin. And one day, we're gonna join you. Grip our hearts with that truth and let that truth go deeper and deeper and deeper and transform us from the inside out. We praise you, Lord. We worship the risen Savior and we pray all this in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?